We are in a series of messages entitled Christmas Hymns where we've been looking at some of the hymns that we sing at Christmas time and talking about how the Scripture inspired those writers in the words that they wrote. And today, we didn't sing the hymn that we're looking at, but uh, we'll probably sing it next Sunday at the Christmas Eve service. The hymn is O Holy Night. It was written in 1847. There was a man by the name of Placide Capot who was... He was a wine commissioner in a small town in France, and the parish priest had came, and he was known to be a great poet. And the parish priest asked him to write a poem that could be shared at the Christmas Mass. Well, he wrote it, and the more he looked at it, the more he thought to himself, this was meant to be a song, not a poem. And so he had a friend by the name of uh, Adolphe Charles Adam, Adam was a great musician. He had studied at the Paris Conservatory. He was a great composer. And so he took the poem to his friend, and he asked his friend to put it to music. Now, this was a very challenging thing for Adam to do for a couple of reasons. Well, the main reason was Adam was Jewish. And so the poem was about a holiday that he didn't celebrate, celebrating a man to be the Son of God that he didn't believe truly was the Son of God. But he took the task on and he set it to music and three weeks later at the Christmas Mass, the song was sung for the first time. Now, a few years later, Placide Capot would join the socialist movement. About the time it was discovered that the person who scored the music, Adam, was a Jew. And so very quickly, the carol lost favor in France. In fact, it was said about the song, there was a total absence of the spirit of religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the very first stanza, when I say the words, you'll know it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And the word pining means wasting away. In other words, as he wrote it, he looked at the world and he thought of that first century. The world was in darkness and despair without hope. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul found its worth. Friend, listen, the worth of your soul, it's not that God likes you. And it's not even that he loves you. Friend, you are to die for. He loved you enough to die for you. And and that's where we find our worth in the fact that Jesus went to the cross for us. John Sullivan Dwight was the American writer who wanted to introduce this French Christmas carol into uh, the American church and Dwight was an ardent abolitionist and so he particularly found the third stanza meaningful the third verse says this truly he taught us to love one another his law is love and his gospel is peace chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease His translation of the French carol soon found favor in the American church, particularly in the church in the north. And we have continued to sing O Holy Night ever since. You know, every story has an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. We have people in our church who are authors who write, and, and they'll tell you that they write things with an introduction, and then there's the body of work, and then there's the conclusion that wraps everything up. And, and the Christmas story is no different. 
A lot of times we get bogged down with the infant in the manger. And that's merely the introduction. If that's all we focus on, we have missed. It's kind of like reading the first chapter of a book and putting it down and saying, man, that was incredible. When really all we got was the introduction to the characters. And, and so the Christmas story has a beginning and it has a body and it has a conclusion. And whereas the Gospels of Mark, I mean, Gospels of Matthew and Luke give us that introduction, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tends to tell us the entirety of the story and so take your bible and turn it to philippians chapter 2 5 through 11 as though the christmas story were a book i'm gonna submit to you today that there are three chapters to the book philippians 2 beginning in verse 5 i invite you to stand to honor the reading of god's word the apostle paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit says let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him above and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. So let's talk about those three chapters. Chapter number one, that night... O Holy Night was about a cradle. Obviously, the Christmas story involves a cradle. In verse 7, Paul says, coming in the likeness of men. What does that mean? In other words, he took on the appearance of a man. He came as an infant born the same way that you and I would be born. And, and so there obviously was a cradle, but Paul then pulls back the curtain of eternity and allows us to see what Jesus was like before the Bethlehem birth, what the pre-incarnate Christ was like. He tells us, first of all, that he had the attributes of God. Look there in verse 6. He said, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. That word form is the Greek word which we get our word morph from. In other words, it's having the essential essence. In other words, Jesus Christ was the essence of God, the essential nature. He existed in the form of God. Jesus said as much in John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? He says, in other words, Jesus was telling him, I have the same attributes, not only the form, but Paul says there that he was equal with God, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word equal there is the, the word isos. We get isosceles triangle from that. An isosceles triangle has two equal, at least two equal sides. And so what he's saying here is that, that the father and the son were equal, that they were in essence the exact same. Friend, after his physical birth, Jesus didn't stop being God. There was never a time when he was man and not God. Now, there was a time when he was God and not man before he came to earth. 
There was a time when he was both God and man when he was on the earth, but there was never a time in his existence when Jesus was just a man and not God. And it's not that he was half man and half God. He was, he was fully God, and yet he was totally man. It's not a matter of subtraction. He didn't stop being God. It's not a matter of division where he was half God and half man. It's a matter of addition. He was God who then added to himself human flesh. We talk about God, the attributes of God. God is omniscient, right? God knows all things. Same could be said about Jesus. In fact, the same was said about Jesus because in, in John chapter 2, it says that in verse 25, for he knew what was in man. Jesus, when he walked the earth, knew what was in man. He was all-knowing. But not only that, talks about God being omnipresent. What did Jesus say before he ascended back to the Father? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and we talk about omnipotent, all-powerful. When, when Jesus was on earth, he was all-powerful. You say, well, how, how do you know that? Do you know anybody else who could speak words and the wind would cease and the waves would stop? Who has the power to do that? Only God. And so he had the attributes of God. But not only did he have the attributes of God in the form of God and equal with God, he had the attitude of God. It says that he didn't think that it was robbery to be equal with God. What does it mean to rob somebody? What's robbery? That's taking something from someone else, right? Taking something that is not yours and it, taking it to be your own. Well, Jesus didn't have to rob the Father of his deity because he already had, he already possessed the deity. The Bible's clear that Jesus was God who then took on human flesh. Some say because we as Christians speak of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we have three gods. You know, they, they want to say, well, one plus one plus one is three. That's, that's true, but that's not how we do the math. One times one times one is one, Right? One times one times one is one. It's one every day. God, everything God created, he created in Trinitarian fashion. You ever thought about that? We talk, for instance, about space. When you talk about space, you have height and depth and width. We talk about time. We have past, present, and future. We talk about man, body, soul, spirit. Everything he created has a Trinitarian nature. And so we worship one God who's revealed in three ways. He had the attributes of God and the attitude of God. That first chapter was about a cradle. But again, we can't stop there because all we've, been, all we've done up to this point is be introduced to the characters. And so Paul takes us past that to chapter number two, which was about a cross. That holy night was about a cross. It said he made himself of no reputation in verse seven. What a rich statement. He made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is he emptied himself. That's literally what it says in the Greek, that he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. Now, did he empty himself of his deity? No. That's not what it means because Paul's clear in Colossians 2.9. It says, for in him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not part of the fullness, not most of the fullness, but all of the fullness. So he didn't empty himself of his deity. What he did is he laid aside his rights and his privileges as God to take on flesh. He didn't appear to be God, right? He appeared as an infant coming 
through the birth of a peasant girl, born the same way that you and I were. His deity, though, at times couldn't help but show through. I think of the Mount of Transfiguration. I think it's Matthew chapter maybe 4 where James and John and Peter are up on the mountain and his, he's transfigured. His glory shows through. But for the most part, when people saw Jesus, they saw a man. That's how he appeared. He laid aside his outward glory. It says, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. Now, that means he went through the same things that you and I go through. Jesus knows what it's like to be mistreated. He knows what it's like to be lied on. He knows what it's like to be turned on by those who you care about. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, Jesus knows what it's like to grieve at the grave after the death of a loved one. In John 11, it says that he wept when Lazarus died. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He was betrayed with a kiss there in the garden. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain because he did so on the cross. He knows what it's like to be stressed out, to, to agonize because he'd sweat drops of blood there in the garden the night of his betrayal. But not only did he empty himself, he also humbled himself. Think of who he was born to. He wasn't born to the Roman emperor, the most powerful man on earth at the time. He was born to a peasant girl who was engaged to a carpenter. He was raised in the city of Nazareth. Friend, Nazareth, we'd call it a hick town. We would. That's why in, in, when, when, when they were calling the disciples and they go and, and they tell Nathaniel, hey, we have found the Messiah. And they tell him that he's from Nazareth. He says then in John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus spent his entire ministry with a motley group of disciples who are a constant source of pain and heartache and grief. He came in humility, though, to make God accessible. You know, some people, by the very nature of who they are, are not very accessible. The president's not very accessible because of the position that he holds. Now, you can try. You can scale the White House fence, but I wouldn't recommend it. You know, not if you want to see Christmas outside of the, the jail cell, all right? But Jesus came so that the blind could see God. He came so that the mute could sing praises to God. He came so that the lame could make their way to God. He made God accessible for us today, you and I have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, and then third, he said he was obedient. He says he was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now again, that's a very rich statement that we need to pause for a moment and think about. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus was submissive to death he was submissive to death listen did jesus have to die did he have to no he didn't have to there's nothing that said he had to he chose to die he was submissive to death the father didn't send the son because he had to he sent the son because he wanted to we we 
know the verse, John 3.16, for God what? So loved who? The world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. Do you see? Jesus was submissive to death. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it willingly. In fact, he told the disciples as much in, in John 10, 17 and 18. I'm just going to read a phrase of it. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. He was submissive to death. Another thing that's implied in that statement, though, is his death was substitutionary. In other words, he took someone's place, namely ours. See, he died instead of me on that cross. He died instead of you on that cross. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took on the cross what you will take for all of eternity if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. But he took your place. You don't have to. He was submissive to death. His death was substitutionary. His death was shameful. He didn't die of natural causes. You know, I'm hoping that when you read my obituary, it says that he died of an old age and natural causes because anything short of natural causes tends to imply pain in my mind. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of adverse to pain. I don't like it. But think of the pain, and not just the pain, but the shame of what he went through. We see Jesus on the cross, and, and artists most of the time, almost all of the time, have a loincloth around him. But friend, that's not probably the way that it happened. In all humility, he, he most likely hung there on the cross naked. Nails in his hands, nails in his feet straining to breathe like a common everyday criminal i want to give you a spiritual first grade lesson most of you here pass first grade spiritually but do you know how to spell christmas in the first grade g-r-a-c-e grace in the cross we see the grace of god Chapter number one was about a cradle. But that was just the introduction. Then chapter number two, Paul says, is about the cross. But chapter number three, the last chapter, the conclusion to the story is about a crown. It's about a crown. That holy night was about a crown. You know, next month I'm going to Israel and I'm taking some of you with me. Some of you are planning on being on that trip. And, and my mom's going. My dad's been asking me if there's any way possible to only buy a one-way ticket for. You know. He's, he's been joking. He's saying, listen, if you, if you can work it out where you can leave her somewhere over there, that would be great. Just buy a one-way ticket. And I know that he's joking, but listen, when Jesus left heaven, he didn't have a one-way ticket to earth. He punched a round-trip ticket from the very start. He came to earth, but he knew that he was eventually headed back to the Father as well. And, and, and so it's about a crown. He was the original Terminator long before Arnold Schwarzenegger because when, when he left heaven, he told the angels, I'll be back. And he did terminate things. He terminated death and sin and the grave and hell he conquered all of that so that we don't have to face that and because of that he has a crown it says therefore verse 9 anytime you read the word therefore you got to ask what's it there for and it typically is a reference to the preceding verses and so because he was obedient to death even the death of the cross therefore god has highly exalted him and that phrase highly exalted it literally means super exalted him 
We live in a day when people say the name of Jesus and they often say it in cursing, in anger, in malice, in mockery. But look at verses 10 and 11. Paul reminds us of a great truth. That at the name of Jesus, here's the crown. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, what does that mean? That means every angel in heaven one day will confess that Jesus is Lord. That means every pagan on earth will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. That means that every demon in hell will one day confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will e- listen, you will either confess that by faith or you will confess it by force, but friend, you don't have a choice. You will confess it one day. And if God has to force you to confess it, it will be eternally too late for you. You will miss it all about a crown the one who came for us so let me give you some life applications say what what does that mean we're headed into 2018 preacher what does it mean for the way that i'm living my life today you know he says he says in verse five let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus you cannot do verse five unless you understand the first four verses now we didn't read them but i hope you still have your bible open because the words won't be on the screen but i want you to see them in philippians 1 through 4 here's what uh, chapter 2 verse 1 through 4 here's what paul says therefore if there's any consolation in christ if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit uh, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord of one mind now here it is let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Friend, the only way that you will have the mind of Christ is when you look out for the interest of others more than you look out for yours. When you serve others, because I mean, think about it. Here's God in the flesh and he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Paul links verse 6 through 11 with verse 1 through 4 with the little phrase in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you want to you know how to do verses 3 and 4? Easy. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What does that mind look like? And then he spells it out in verses 6 through 11. So life application. If we're going to be like Jesus, we have to be a servant. Number one, as a servant, we give up our rights. Jesus had all of the rights of the Creator God, and He willingly set those rights aside. He had access to all of the privileges and power of His divine nature. He could have dominated creation. He could have destroyed creation, and yet the Scripture says He came to serve the very creation that He created. He had the right to get worship, and instead He chose to give to others contrast between jesus's value system and the value system of our world in our world the one who has the most power the one who has the most prestige the one who has the most titles the most resources they are the ones who are esteemed with jesus it was just the opposite you know the disciples came to him often it's primarily james and john and even james and john's mother one time came and said you know when you come into your kingdom who gets who gets to be greatest and and james and john wanted to be on the right and the left and their mother said hey i got one favor can you let my boys sit on the right and the left when you have your kingdom and and that's the world's mindset that it's all about 
power. And, and so Jesus said, here's what it means to have power. Here's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. In Mark 10, beginning in verse 42, it says, But Jesus called them, that's his disciples, to himself. And he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, the world system is if you've got the power, use it. Let folks know you are in control. You know the old Alexander Haig when Ronald Reagan got shot, you know, and, and he said, I'm in control. You know, that's the world's philosophy. I'm in control. Jesus says, yet it shall not be among you. Whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever desires to be first shall be slave to all. Why? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. If we want to have the mind of Christ as a servant, we give up our rights. You know, we used to have a motto around here, it's all about him, and it really is. The world says it's all about us, but it's really all about him. Life application number two, as a servant, we become less so that others can become more. We become less so that others can become more. He left the splendor of heaven and the company of angels to experience the company of mankind. What a, what a stark contrast. The, the splendor of glory for the smell of urine and dung in a stable. How far did Jesus have to travel? From heaven to the cross. From streets of gold to the cobblestone path of the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, as he carried his own crossbeam to Mount Calvary. From the songs of heaven's chorus to the cries of the angry mob, crucify him. Friend, that's, what it, that's at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It means losing our life. Jesus said, you want to save your life? you got to lose it. it it's, it's oxymoronic. It doesn't make sense to us, but, but it's true. If you, want to, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it, Jesus is saying. You make others more important than yourself. It means emptying yourselves of, of self to be filled with him and his desires. The reason that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is so attractive is because it appeals to the human nature. What we're talking about today does not appeal to the human nature. If I had a sign-up sheet out in the Welcome Center and said, those of you who want to sign up to become less so that others could become more, there'd probably be as many names on it when you left as there were when I put the sign-up sheet out there. Because that, that doesn't appeal to us. Jesus says that the greatest is going to be the servant of all. It's contrary to our sinful nature to become less so that others can become more. But that's exactly what it means when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Life application number three. As a servant, we are to be obedient no matter the cost. No matter the cost. It says he humbled himself. It's hard for us to grasp that statement. He made all men. He knew the hearts of all men. He had authority over all men, and yet he chose to allow himself to be executed by men. We've got to be willing to be a servant no matter what it costs us. Now, if, 
If you don't hear any other sentence in this whole sermon and get it, please get this one. Are you listening? I I think this is probably the, the, the most important sentence of this sermon. There's nothing that he will ever ask of you that will cost you anything close to what the cross cost him. God will never ask you for anything that will cost you anything remotely close to what the cross cost him. We can never give up what he gave up. We can never humble ourselves in the manner that he did. And yet we must be willing to do what he asks us to do no matter the cost. See, many of us, we have predetermined in our mind, we've put God in a box. And we've determined that this is what God wants of me. And as long as God asks me to do something that's in the box, I'm good with that. But if God asks me to do something outside of the box, we stop being good with it and we say, well, that's not really of God. Because we've made up our mind that God wouldn't ask us anything that that we're not obviously willing to pay. We set the parameters of what we will do and not do in following Christ. And we've convinced ourselves that that's the way that it is. We have selective obedience. If it's in the box, we select it and say, okay, God, I got it. I can do this. If it's outside the box, you know, we say, it's kind of like if you're a parent, you know what selective obedience is. You know, you ask your child to do something, and if they want to do it, then they'll do it, and that's selective obedience. If they don't want to do it, they need a little bit of motivation. Know what I'm talking about? You motivate them to do it. Friends, selective obedience is nothing but disobedience. If you're not willing to do whatever he asks you, no matter the cost, that's the same thing as disobedience. I mean, there's no other term for it. There are no part-time disciples. You're either all in or all out. The word Lord means all or nothing. Either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Life application number four, I'm done. Being a servant is more about being than doing. See, religion puts self over others, but that's not true Christianity. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. How can we, his followers, exalt ourselves, build ourselves up if he humbled himself? It, it doesn't, it's not right. If he died for others, how can we fail to live for him? If he willingly died, how can we not willingly live for others? And we often look for that one big defining moment where we can demonstrate our faithfulness, where we can prove that we're committed. You know, for instance, I'm going to go on a mission trip this year, and I'm going to prove my commitment to God. You ought not go on a mission trip to prove your commitment to God. You ought ought to go on a mission trip out of obedience because he said to go. I mean, it's just part of the great commission that was given to all of us. That doesn't prove, you shouldn't look for one big moment to define your commitment. Following Christ is what happens in your everyday world. Let me give you an example. Here's how you demonstrate your commitment. About, it's about more about being than doing. It's how you speak to that waitress in a few minutes that reveals your Christianity. It's about how you handle the cashier at the grocery store when you're in a hurry and she's talking to everybody who's in front of you as they come through her line. It's how you interact with that person who picks up your trash on the week that you're, the day of the week that you're supposed to put your trash out. 
that's where Christianity's revealed. It's, it's more about being, just, just being Christ to those people than it is about doing. It's how you interact with those who are socially beneath you. We, we all like to interact with those who are socially above us, but how do you interact with those who are socially beneath you? How do we treat them? That's what it means to follow Christ. You know, we're just conduits. God's love. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live through you know, Christ who died for me and gave himself for me. And so, so we're just the conduit of God's love. You know, when, when I go to a restaurant, I, listen, this is, I just want, I want you to understand my heart. It, when I go to a restaurant and a waitress has multiple tables, I don't want any other table to out-tip me. Why? On the chance that that waitress knows I'm a believer, I want her to know that my faith is about giving and not just about getting. There's a single mom that um, we like to go see at Cracker Barrel. We've become friends with her. She's a waitress, and we always ask for her table. She has two children, lives in Edmondson County, and drives down to Cracker Barrel several days a week. And um, somebody blessed us with a generous Christmas gift. And my wife doesn't even know that I did this, but we saw that waitress yesterday, and I just took that gift and folded it in my hand and told her to put out her hand, and I said, put this in your pocket. I, I guarantee it was probably the best tip she had all day. But it wasn't about me. See, because somebody blessed me, and, and all I was doing was being a blessing to others, giving what I had so that others can be blessed. Folks, that's what, that's what being a Christian is about. It's about being Christ. It's not just about doing things, but it's about being Christ on an everyday basis to those you interact with. You know, whenever we hear a story, it's important to get it in proper order, right? You, you know, if you get the story out of order, it kind of messes things up. I was reading this week about a guy who was invited to go to a banquet, and he wasn't much of a conversationalist. He, he didn't like to talk. He was very shy, and, and he was invited for some reason to sit at the head table of this banquet, and he told one of his friends, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn in my RSVB card and say I can't go. He said, why? And he said, well, because I, I can't talk. And he said, I can teach you. It's real easy. You just have to ask the right questions. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you ask somebody have you ever been married or are you married and you know if they're married they're going to tell you about their spouse if their spouse is deceased they're going to tell you about what a wonderful person they were or you know if, if they're single they're going to tell you why they've not been married but they'll just take the conversation and run with it and if they've been married then ask them do you have any kids folks love to talk about their children and if they're old enough then ask them do you have any grandkids and, you know, it's in our job description as grandparents. We not only talk about them, but we show pictures. And he said, listen, it, it, you, just those questions will keep that person busy, and you'll be a great conversationalist. And he talked him into doing it, so he accepted the invite, and he went. At the banquet, they happened to put him next to uh, this woman who was probably the uh, matriarch, if you would, of their community. She was the social elite. And he's sitting there, and the food's being served, and he's thinking, okay, now, I really need to have a conversation, and as a man, I need to be the one who initiates the conversation. And so he looks at her, and he says, do you have any children? Man, she starts. She tells him about all her kids and what they're doing and how proud of them she is. And, and, and he says, man, that's great. He says, do you have any grandchildren? 
And she had five, and she begins to tell about all of these grandchildren and all how special they were and showed pictures. And then he looked at her and he said, have you ever been married? <laughs> the conversation ended right there. That was the last, you know, boom, cut it off. When you tell a story, you have to get it in the right order. And friend, the right order of the Christmas story is the cradle, the cross, and the crown. Any other order is the wrong order. Because you have to believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh, that he then died on the cross for your sins, and that he is your only hope of salvation. And when you get it in that order... You got it in the right order, and you can be saved. Father, I pray today that um, we would take the words of Philippians chapter 2 as the Apostle Paul has pulled back the curtain of glory and allowed us to see the pre-incarnate Christ, what Christ was like as he walked this earth, and what he is like today is he is exalted and given that name that is above every name. God, I pray for those who are here today who have never confessed him by faith. That this would be the day that they would place their faith, their hope, their trust in you, Jesus. And that they would be saved. Lord, have your will in our heart and life. And pray that we would be obedient to what your spirit asks of us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.